0: On this edition of the Scott Radley show podcast, we are talking about the travel rules that Canada has put in place. A lot of people think it's very good. The ideas are very good, if not a little bit late, but is it infringing on your constitutional rights as a Canadian? One group in this country believes it is, and will be taking it to court to suggest that it it's kind of turning into a criminal rather than a Canadian citizen. We'll discuss with them. We're also talking about cheating at university, not accusing, not accusing, Just saying, universities are trying to figure out how to protect against cheating, but some of the answers they've given have led to blowback as an infringement, again, of your rights, of students' rights. What's the answer? And Alan Cross joins us, great music writer, talking about his belief that classic rock, even though it may not be as in fashion today, is going to be the music of the future. Why? Well, you got to find out. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There are those of you, perhaps many of you, I don't know, we haven't done the survey yet, who are quite pleased with the rules the federal government has now put in place as it pertains to traveling. A lot of people saying too late, should have done this a long time ago, but a lot of people saying it's about time. And these these are the ones that say that if you come back into Canada, if you decide to go away and you come back, you have to stay quarantined when you come home. And then You can get a test done and after three days of paying your own way in the hotel or wherever else, uh, if you're negative, you can go home and quarantine some more. And if you're positive, you go to a government quarantine facility for longer. However, there are also those who say, wait a second, as you're saying, this is a great idea, think through what you're agreeing to. This is a serious infringement on our rights as Canadians. Police and other government people can detain you if you break a law. But what if you're not breaking a law? What if you are just traveling and you haven't committed a crime at all? It's an interesting, interesting position. One group says it'll be filing a constitutional challenge to those new rules, presumably arguing that they go against our charter rights to freedom and other guaranteed liberties. The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms says it will file immediate court challenges to the plan to force returning travelers into forcible quarantine. John Carpe is president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and he joins me now. John, thanks for doing this today. Glad to be with you. Uh, A lot of things I want to get to on this one, because it's it's a topic that I think there is really mixed opinion on in the country. But let's start here, because in the past couple days, I have read and seen video and heard accounts in Alberta of people being snatched up from Alberta airports and taken to undisclosed locations by government officials of some kind, And their loved ones are told they're not entitled to know any details. Now, to be fair, and I want to be clear on this, these reports, these videos, these stories are from Facebook. They're presented from the perspective of a family member who probably have a vested interest and it doesn't offer a balance on the other side. So I have no idea if there's any truth to them. And I'm a bit of a skeptical guy. Do you believe these stories to be true?
1: Well, yes, one of our clients was a woman coming back from the United States, and um, she actually had a negative PCR test and uh, was deemed to be not good enough. She was taken away to an undisclosed location, and um, the federal government hasn't justified why returning Canadians cannot quarantine at home. And it's very scary when a government can take you away to a secret location. You have no right to speak with a lawyer. Uh, Your family is kept in the dark as to your whereabouts. And your confinement and detention, which is effectively its imprisonment, is not even reviewed by a judge. So an accused criminal actually has more rights than uh, returning Canadian, coming back home, when the Charter guarantees our, our right to leave Canada freely and re-enter Canada freely. And any restriction on that right has to be justifiable based on science and evidence. And it's, it's rather ironic that governments are using the PCR tests to, to generate a huge number of cases to justify lockdowns. But now we have instances of Canadians coming back with a negative PCR test, and they're still being taken away and locked up against their will in a secret place So it's
0: terrifying. Well, okay. So uh, now again, I'm a skeptical guy by nature. So, you know, I've, I've seen these videos. I saw the two videos. There's two of them that I saw on Facebook, both from Alberta, both telling a similar story. Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta says these stories are false. They're not the case. Is he not telling the truth or is he not aware or how is he saying this doesn't happen?
1: I don't know what's going on in Jason Kenney's mind, but uh, I do know that, that the Charter requires the government to justify an infringement of our rights and freedoms. And the, the right to leave Canada and re-enter Canada as a Canadian citizen <clears throat> is fundamental. It's only the the worst, most oppressive regimes that are human rights violators that actually seek to confine their own citizens. And when you can no longer leave and enter Canada freely then uh, that's the hallmark of a of a very scary and repressive regime and it's a lack of respect for for basic human rights this is why you know in the criminal law system there you have to be charged with an offense the police can't just snatch you up and take you somewhere they have to say okay we're we're charging you with you know whatever rape or murder or even shoplifting we're charging you and now you have a right to remain silent you have a right to a lawyer uh, if you do get tossed into prison, you know, whether it's just uh, 24 hours overnight or, or whether it's for a longer period of time, you get to go before a judge. And the judge has to review whether the state is properly authorized to take your liberty away and confine you to a place against your will. And the the government has to justify and say, OK, well, yes, well, this person's a you know dangerous offender. Uh, they've been charged with murder or rape, so they need to be locked up. And none of these rights are there for returning travelers coming back to
0: Canada. John, just before we get to that part about what action you may bring, the, yes. the explanations, and again, on Facebook, watching the videos of these two people from Alberta who described it, similar stories, uh, sort of nondescript government employees snatched someone up, and I hate to use that word, but it's the word they use, snatched someone up and took them to a an undisclosed location and they couldn't reach out. Uh, it all sounds terrifying. But if you leave the country of your own volition, knowing what the rules are now, should you not have to follow the rules when you get home, even if they are incredibly extreme? The rule is the rule, and so just follow it.
1: You could say that about any unjust law. I mean, the government could, uh, and is in fact planning to censor speech that it doesn't like on, um, on, on social media. And you could say, well, the law is the law, so just follow it. But the laws have to comply with the fundamental rights and freedoms and, and human dignity that the Charter seeks to protect. And the purpose of the Charter is to protect citizens from uh, unjust government action. What we have here, and I need to correct something I said a minute ago. Um, this The woman who came back did not have the uh, the PCR test that, uh, that the federal government is, is relying on. She had a different test. That doesn't change the fact that she came back and there's a, a program in place in Alberta that allows people returning to Calgary, uh, as well as I think Vancouver and Toronto, uh, can submit to a test at the airport, quarantine at home for a day or two. And if they test negative, they don't have to be quarantined for 14 days. And so there's no reason why this woman could not have been tested uh, when landing in Calgary and then go and quarantine at home this whole idea of locking people up in what is effectively a prison, insofar as, you know, maybe it's just a temporary rented hotel and it doesn't have barbed wire, but effectively you're you're put into a prison for one or two or three days without access to even being able to phone your family in a secret location. Uh, there's no need for that kind of action in a free and democratic society. And is that
0: what it is? I mean, is it really that? We've got two people that are
1: swearing affidavits in the court action. And, you know, yes, I suppose somebody could lie on an affidavit, but people typically don't because you know that you you can be cross-examined under oath and the transcript of your cross-examination will be placed before the judge. So people typically are quite truthful in an affidavit. And we're getting up to a half dozen clients uh, from people that have been detained when this uh order uh is not even legally in force (laughs) yet that's yet another problem so yeah i i i have no reason to doubt that i don't think these people are making up stories that they were uh you know carted off from the airport and taken away somewhere against their will and locked up against their will Hmm. uh i don't see any reason
0: to doubt those stories well, the government does have in its power, and we don't like it necessarily, but we saw with the War, War Measures Act, for example, way, way back, uh, it does have in its power the ability to do incredibly over-the-top things in moments of incredible danger, I guess would be the way to describe it. Could the government not say this is one of those moments with a pandemic, and therefore, yes, this is not really ideal, but we have to? I think, you,
1: I think you've I think you summarized quite accurately what the federal government is, is probably going to say in court, and our answer to that is uh, if COVID was the unusually deadly killer that the politicians have been telling us for the past 10 months that it is, what you would see is markedly higher death rates in Canada in 2020. And anybody who goes to the Statistics Canada website can see that the deaths in 2020 are very much in line with 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016, we've got a virus that is harmless for roughly 90% of the population, but that's very dangerous for people in nursing homes. And what the politicians should do is get their acts together and protect the vulnerable seniors in long-term care, rather than locking up 90% of the, or 100% of the population with lockdown measures, which are inflicting a lot of harm to our mental health and uh, throwing people into uh, unemployment and poverty and despair and even suicide. Uh, we've got more people dying of opioid uh, drug overdoses than we do of COVID in uh, in many provinces. So, I mean, the harms that the government is inflicting with lockdowns far outweighs any benefits. And,
0: you know, I'd like to see the government's evidence as well as to what benefits lockdowns have brought hmm. What what will be the issue? Sir, first of all, what court, and we only have a minute or so left here, what level court, what court will you be taking this to and what will you be arguing to happen? What will you be hoping you can have happen, that this entire thing gets lifted or tweaked or what?
1: So the court action will be filed um next week, the week of February the eighth. It'll be filed in the Federal Court of Canada and it will be seeking a declaration that our clients were unlawfully and illegally detained and that their charter rights and freedoms have been violated. And if the new rules are actually proclaimed into effect, if they are the law, then we will be challenging those as well as uh, unjustified overreach and an unjustified violation of our rights and freedoms as
0: Canadians. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating situation at McMaster these days. You know that Almost all classes are now being taught online. There's a few medical classes and things that are in person, but almost everything is being done online. And because of that, exams are also going to be done online. And when you put those together and you talk about the exams being done online, you theoretically have fertile ground for cheating. Wouldn't be hard to use the internet to come up with answers while you're typing an answer. You could figure it out. Anyone could figure it out. So the school has decided or is planning on using artificial intelligence to, ha- to help prevent this. Now, as I understand it, one of the programs that is being discussed or brought in would allow students' webcams to be accessible by professors. So certain cues, not exactly sure how it all works, but somehow if something happens that the, an- the algorithm finds unusual, the professor could turn in on- tune in on the webcam and see what the student was doing. Problem solved? Well, no. As you can probably imagine, some are saying this is a rather egregious privacy infringement. Teachers shouldn't be able to just look in on students' homes through the cameras. So, what is the answer? Dr. Sarah Elaine Eaton is an assistant professor at the University of Calgary who specializes in academic integrity. She joins us now. Dr. Eaton, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation.
2: uh, Let's let's jump to
0: Utopia to start with because we all love Utopia. It's a beautiful idea. Uh, The Utopian answer would be to say students don't cheat, and it would all go away. But I think you and I, and probably everyone else in the world, would agree that uh, that would be something we would have low confidence in. Correct?
2: Well, I would agree with you, but I would also say that in Utopia we would not have tests at all. I mean, we've been using (laughs) exams since the sixth century, so why are we still using the same methods to assess students that they were using in the sixth century? Surely. We have developed and evolved beyond that.
0: Uh, I'll agree with you on that one. I hated exams. So I I would have been all for getting rid of exams. Sadly, we are still there though. Uh, And, you know, cheating. And again, I don't think anyone listening, including yourself, maybe, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with me. Cheating has been going on for as long as exams have been written. People have found ways to work the system. By the Mm -hmm. way, before we get into it, you've been doing this a long time. Uh, What's the most clever method a student has ever tried to cheat in one of your exams? Have you ever found something really unusual?
2: Oh my goodness! There are so many ways that students can can cheat during exams, and and every year it gets more and more sophisticated, right? From earwigs that they can buy in a spy shop to things they can add to their glasses, special glasses they can buy. Wow! Um, it, it's just it gets more and more sophisticated every year. You know, just the uh, the labels on the inside of the water bottle that's so twentieth century. It's out the window.
0: <laughs> and we thought that back in the 80s we were really being you know incredible with our calculators our texas instruments calculators you could plug some answers into that was really seen as you know cutting it all right um so and do you think it's gone up though do you think that the so we, we know it's been going on forever now that students are home they're all online they're doing everything away from the prying eyes of professors do you believe in all likelihood there's been more cheating on tests and exams this year
2: uh Yes. I mean, universities and colleges across Canada, the U.S. and the globe have all reported increases in cheating, right? Some schools in Australia have reported 400% increase wow. in cheating. Yeah. And, but I mean, I think part of it is how we're defining cheating, because we're taking, you know, what's normal online behavior, which is sharing. And then we're telling students, yeah, you can share your memes, your photos, your videos, your music, all that other stuff. They're not supposed to share, even though it's copyright protected, and people do it, you do it, I do it, the listeners do it. And then we turn around and tell students, oh, but if you share your answers, then we're suddenly going to pull you up on misconduct. Sharing is normal in an online environment, but Mm -hmm. we have criminalized it
0: it's a really interesting thought. I'd never actually considered the idea that some students might see this as a normal behavior because they do this in every other facet of their life. And I would say, based on your comment, I would absolutely see this as being something very confusing for, let's say someone who's in early high school or even high school. But by university, should that not be clear to students about what is or isn't allowed to be shared or what is or isn't plagiarism?
2: You would think, right? But I think part of the problem as well is profs aren't making the expectations clear. So profs like me have made assumptions that if we do an exam, it's closed book, you're not looking at anything, um, and that you're not supposed to share your answers. Students might think, well, they do study groups online and they have, um, you know, their online chat groups that they share with each other uh, and that, that the kind of sharing that they do online would just extend. And it's also a little bit harder to get caught, so it's a little more tempting. I think it's a little more, you know, seductive thinking, oh, the prof's not watching me, so um, so I, I won't get caught. And that's where I think the z-proctoring software comes in because suddenly someone is watching.
0: The temptation part, uh, absolutely. I, I, you know, Whether or not we like the idea of exams, it, I think it's abundantly clear that exams were never designed to be done in your home where there is nobody watching you. I mean, that's just the reality that they, th- this is the first time I think probably this has ever happened like this, is it not?
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, right? And all of these products, you know, I, I often use the analogy that e-proctoring software is to higher education what hydroxychloroquine was to the virus. It's not that the products were bad, it's that they were never intended for use during this pandemic.
0: So what could you do? I mean, uh, there's a few things I want to get into, but we can't, surely we can't just say, well, you know, let them cheat. If they want to cheat, let them cheat. I I don't think that can possibly be the answer. No, I agree. But But also, I don't know that having cameras into students' homes because of the obvious privacy issues that could happen there. I don't think that's the answer. So what is the answer?
2: Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's one single answer. I think there strategies profs can use. If they have to give an exam, they can do things like have a really big uh, test bank of questions where every student for essentially gets a different exam um, so that there's enough questions so that it, students can't cheat. They can reduce the amount of time students have to answer a question, say 30 to 60 seconds per question and the exam goes on to the next question. So they don't, they literally don't Hmm. have time to look up the answers. They can have uh, the questions rotate. So students are not answering the same questions at the same time. Um, And so, you know, there are, there are things that we can do, but it takes more effort on the part of the professor to set up their exams that way.
0: You mentioned before that exams, maybe we could just get rid of exams and we could solve this whole problem by eliminating the problem itself. But what other, method could we use to test a student when we can't be there in person to make sure they've learned the material and have progressed enough that equally wouldn't have the opportunity to cheat? Like you're writing an exam well, you're writing an essay, you could still cheat. You could still play there. What what would be the way we could remove the exams and accomplish the same thing?
2: Um, I think as much as possible, have students show Um, how they know and demonstrate through their learning rather than show what they know. So, you know, when I'm talking to colleagues or or people who oppose the idea of e-proctoring, I say, okay, imagine that as a professor, you want to use this software, but before you have to use it with your students, you have to experience it yourself. So let's imagine a scenario in which you as a professor have to take a test yourself in which you are e-proctored, and we'll make it easy for you. We'll give you a test that you've taken before, say your driving test. But let's make the stakes real and say, if you don't pass the e-proctored driving test from your home, you lose your driver's license. Why don't we create that as a real-world scenario for you? Because, of course, you're a very good driver because you already have your, your driver's license because you took your test. Um, and, and so that's sort of a real world scenario. But the I mean, it's not really a logical argument because we know that driving skills improve over time as people practice and demonstrate their skills on a daily basis. So a test only captures knowledge on one day in one point in time under specific circumstances. It doesn't actually demonstrate the, the knowledge that a person has to apply their skills in a real world setting.
0: Which, again, is very difficult right now. In, in most, most years, I think you could apply what you're saying rather simply in a lot of ways. But now, again, because you can't be together, very difficult to figure out how to do that.
2: Yeah, I'll give you an example of one thing I've done with my own students. Now, I teach smaller classes. It might not work with a big lecture class, but I uh, gave my students oral exams. And I can tell in five minutes if they've read the material, if they understand the concepts. And I say, if you summarized this, right? Uh, And I can do it very quickly. Um, Again, you need a small class to do that, but I I do it over a video conferencing software. I see them. I know it's the actual student uh, that's registered in my class because I've already given them other opportunities to have them on video. Uh, So I know it's not a stand-in or some exam. Proxy that comes to write their exam for them, Um, and uh, so I implemented oral exams, and they've worked very well. But it caused me to rethink: What am I assessing? Why am I assessing? And what do I want to know about my students? I want to know that they've learned.
0: Hmm. One of the things, and I wanted to have you on for a lot of reasons, but one of them was a a, a, among them was a comment that I read in a story talking about this, and this is uh, this you're you're attributed, this quote is attributed to you, so please tell me if it's not what you said, but expecting students not to do that, as in not to cheat, is quite unrealistic because we know that students are also under pressure to perform. Um, The idea being, I guess, that because there's so much pressure and because the temptation is there to do, to to be able to cheat with online or whatever else, it's unrealistic to think they're not going to. Is that a, a fair interpretation of what you said?
2: Well yeah and I th- I think you mentioned that at the at the beginning of our session today as well right and we know that stress and pressure to perform are factors that will contribute to student cheating so that's that's not new it's simply changed during the pandemic and the stress has been exacerbated by the by the coronavirus
0: and I agree with with all of that but is it a cop out though to say that because of the pressure and because it's there and because of the temptation that we should just expect or sort of realize students are going to do this. Is it a cop-out, does it give them an excuse for doing something they shouldn't be doing?
2: Oh gosh, no. No, no, it doesn't give them an excuse, but it does make us think if students are gonna test, uh, cheat on exams, then, you know, there's a couple of different parties involved here. There's the teacher, there's the student, there's the school. Um, and so if, if the exams are part of the problem, um, how do we rethink exams? Uh, and so I don't think it's always all about the students. I really do think that my fellow faculty members and educators bear some of the responsibility in the conversation to actually ask themselves, how do I best um, have assignments, assessments, tests, whatever, to really allow my students to show me what they know? Because if I create a multiple choice quiz that's unproctored and they've got a lot of time to do it, um, in fact, if I was given that test, I might be tempted to cheat. And in fact, you're daring them. of our listeners might be, yeah, they might.
0: Yeah. Be. You're daring them to cheat. I, 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 I mm-hmm. get that. I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't think we should always we should say it should just happen, but absolutely now to that end. So we are in very unique circumstances right now, and maybe mm-hmm. this is just medieval old school thinking that I'm going to throw out there, but Our universities, our professors right now, do they have the arrow in their quiver to say, look, I know some of you are going to try to cheat, but I have the power if I catch you cheating to expel you from university. And so if you have the hammer of Thor hanging over their head, is that enough to convince them not to do it, that the risk is just too high?
2: Um, yeah it is a little medieval to be honest, um, and I think at many Canadian universities, the prof wouldn't actually have that power. The prof would report it to an administrator and the administrator would, would make some decision and then they would consider factors like is it the student's first defense um, how you know how egregious was it um, and so forth so there would be a number of different factors but i think what you're asking me is is the threat of consequence enough to diminish the probability of misconduct the answer is probably yes if students know that there are real consequences if students if schools don't impose any consequences it can also signal to students that either the teacher or the school doesn't care. So it's on both sides, right? We talk about upholding integrity and the expectations of conduct, and if those expectations are violated, there's, we expect, uh, you know, if students are found responsible, that we hold them to account for that. So we still need procedures in place to, um, to tackle those who, whether they've made a bad decision once or they um, engage in serial misconduct, as we call it, you know, continued behaviors over and over again, that we have structures and systems in place to address that appropriately.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Want to bring in uh, Alan Cross. Um, Let me me set this up for a little bit. There was a scene in the fantastic documentary about the history of the Eagles. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still there. Great documentary. Anyway, Glenn Fry, who's the late, great Glenn Fry made a rather profound observation as he was talking in this about the history of the Eagles. He pointed out that a big part of the reason for the band's longevity is that they were producing music and they were really hot for a long, long time. And just as it seemed they were petering out or going to break up, Classic rock stations, radio stations began to emerge. And so they went right from their performing, creating days into classic rock stations. So their music never stopped. It just kept going, rolled from one venue into the next. Here's the thing though. The strength of those stations came from the eagerness of baby boomers and Gen Xers to hear the music that they grew up with and they loved. But what happens when those people begin to disappear? And sadly they are. Does that music not just die off as well? Not necessarily. Let me bring in Alan Cross. He is the writer, the producer, the guy behind a journal of musical things. I would argue that he is Canada's best music writer. He joins us now. Alan, how are you tonight? I'm okay. You know, every day is Groundhog Day. Every day is, just today really is. Uh, It seems to me when when I think about this, and you have a very compelling argument to make, but it seems to me when you're talking about a time of hip-hop and Drake and Taylor Swift and throw in whoever else you want in that, uh, that the idea that somehow Bob Dylan's music is still going to get another life and be going strong in 20, 30, 40 years is far-fetched. But you argue that it likely will. T- take Take it away and explain why you think that this stuff is not just going to die out. Okay.
3: Now, if you've been following developments in the music industry, you'll know that a number of companies, there's about a half a dozen of them, with more coming in every once in a while, who have been buying up the publishing rights, the copyrights, to a lot of classic music. Uh, Bob Dylan would be one, Neil, Neil 30%, Young, 30%, Yeah. Uh, yep. Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood all from Fleetwood Mac, uh, and a whole whack of others. And... What's happening is that these artists are getting their future royalties up front. And we're talking 80 million, a hundred million, 150 million, $300 million all up front. They're all in their seventies. So why not enjoy money? The money that your music is going to make now, rather than have the money come in after you're dead. You can't do anything about it. This also creates an opportunity for you to deal with taxes and estate planning, and inheritances, and all that sort of stuff. Plus, you can live out the rest of your life in, with, with pure financial bliss. You don't have to worry about a thing, which is a big deal because a lot of these artists aren't making any money anymore with record sales. They're not making a lot of money with streaming. And because of COVID, they can't go out on the road and make big dollars every night that they play. So it turns out to be a really smart move for them take all that money up front and put the risk of collecting that money on somebody else. We have these companies like Hypnosis and Primary Wave and Concord Song Publishing and and a bunch of others. So what they've done is these companies have incurred a tremendous amount of debt by buying these catalogs they are going to have to figure out how to make their money back and to turn a profit now this is a a long game they're not going to do it in a year or two we're talking over decades they think that they can unlock the value in these songs and keep this music generating cash for for years to come
0: where how because this is the question that i've had it makes sense for the artists the artists are brilliant for doing this you're absolutely right but now you've got changing tastes in music. So if I buy the catalog, where am I selling this to or playing this? And who's the audience that wants this once the boomers and Gen Xers are gone? Well, I, their thinking is that this is, these are great songs
3: that will appeal to everybody of all age groups from here on in. And what they're going to have to do is make sure this music gets in front of uh everybody so that they will continue to um, you know enjoy it so okay how are you going to make your money back well you're going to make it by licensing this music to other uh, other things like TV shows movie soundtracks um, and that sort of thing there's going to be a full court press making sure that this music is front and center when it comes to streaming music services in fact if you look at some of the stats right now you'll find that some of these heritage acts are actually uh, outstreaming a lot of current acts which is good because that is is generating cash um then you know we can look at things like uh hologram concerts you know that's a a type of Mm. performing art so you would see money realized from that uh virtual something, virtual concerts, perhaps. There's, 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 are, are there are a lot of things that we perhaps don't even, can't even imagine just yet that are, that's going to be uh, used to earn this money back, to make this money back. Now, the problem there is that there will be a tremendous push on this older music, this music in the last 60 years into popular culture. And that could mean that this music will be tremendously, tremendously uh, ubiquitous to the point where it overshadows new music coming out. Mm. And a lot of new Mm -hmm. artists will have their careers smothered in the crib simply because these big companies need to make the money back recycling this, this old music. It isn't, you know, it used to be that if you were, let's say, you know, 17 years old right now, uh, back in the day, you would never listen to your parents' music. Uh, yeah, that just wasn't done. you listened listen to your contemporaries. But these days with streaming, all people care about is, is it a good song? They don't care if it's from 1967 or 1975 or uh, 2021. Is it a good song? Yes, I'll listen to it. So it's not just the Gen Xers and the baby boomers. It's also uh, the millennials and everybody that's coming behind them who are music fans, and they, you know, they, they don't care how old the music is, as long as it's a good song. So. Um,
0: All right. Stupid question. A stupid question, Alan. Do, does, do artists have to pay if they sample a song? Because I could easily see, we, and we've seen this with a lot of songs, Africa by Toto, for example, where it was redone and given a much more modern dance track and suddenly the original and everything else around it took off again. Do, do you pay? Did Toto make a fortune by whoever it was? I can't remember now who, who redid the song. Weezer. It was Weezer. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, no, there was they, someone else though who did a uh, another version as well. Um, well, regardless of who
3: does it, what they get are the publishing royalties from that.
0: And uh, so, if, if I'm
3: Toto and, and Weezer, for example, has a big hit with a cover of their song, they're happy. They're making money from that. Nobody has to ask permission to cover a song, but you do have to go through the performing rights organizations, uh, you know, because you've recorded somebody else's song and that song gets played in public. Uh, the performing rights organizations. Will then collect fees and pay the original composer of, Vassar, of
0: that. What about sampling? If you just take a uh, chunk of the song,
3: you you have to clear your samples. You you okay. do have to pay for the right to use a sample. So you've just mentioned two things here, uh, uh, which are, which are pretty good. So uh, these people will go out and encourage younger bands to either cover older material, which will generate airplay royalties, or performing rights royalties, or, or um, publishing royalties. Or they'll be a little bit more um, lax or open-minded about having other people sample their work, so it's recycled in it a different way, and then that becomes publishing royalties as well.
0: Did I, I obviously misunderstood because I always thought that, and I don't know why I thought this, but that public that uh, trademark protection expired after fifty years. That fifty years on, all of a sudden, a song became the public domain, and anybody could use it for free. Uh, not
3: the not no, true. It, not true it is in canada it is uh the life of the composer plus 50 years so if somebody dies today 50 years from now that song will go into the public domain unless there are changes to the copyright act in the united states and other places it could be 70 years it could be 75 years It could be life plus 95 years canada's a little bit behind on that one
0: but life of the composer or life of the owner? So if someone has bought the rights now, does is it his or her lifetime plus 50?
3: The, the way the copyright law is written right now, it's the composer.
0: Okay. So how much of this comes from the fact that um, if you are someone who is in the music business and you have people under contract right now who are producing music, so much of it is being streamed, not necessarily sold as albums, and you've talked about it on the show before, you're making millicents per stream, almost nothing. There's not necessarily that huge money that's available for the current artists, and so you're looking for other ways to find revenue streams. Right. So some artists who are
3: reasonably current... Imagine Dragons, Killers, a couple of songwriters who have done songs for people like Beyonce have sold their publishing rights as well. So they are able to you know, get the money up front and then continue their, their songwriting careers or their performance careers without having to worry about money.
0: But there's an awful lot who don't fall into the category of the big, big names right. and... All right, another one that uh, that popped to mind when I heard this. Uh, years ago, when I bought season one of WKRP in Cincinnati, the box set on DVD, I don't even know if they make DVDs anymore. That's how, uh, how fast we move these days. All the music, originally, the original WKRP in Cincinnati, it had The Who and it had, I think, The Stones and it had all the original bands. When the box set came out, the music, that original music was gone because they would have had to pay licensing fees for it. And they had just gone out and found some house band to come up with some new songs. It was cheaper, it was simple enough, and it kind of fit the bill. And so if you're talking about trying to, if you need to find music for background for a show or for whatever else, why go to these people who have just bought these expensive catalogs and pay the big bucks as opposed to just doing the way cheaper route and find some band that just wants to put out some music and get paid a little bit? Because you're hurting the authenticity of the original product. So, you know, I've seen those
3: WKRP uh, episodes with the fake music in it. It's not the same. I mean, the thing that made WKRP so interesting back in the beginning was the fact that they were one of the first uh, first TV shows to use real music as, as part of the show. And uh, back then, there was all kinds of issues about licensing that never got released, never got solved. And uh, There has been a, a change in that in that uh, there is a new version of the WKRP series with the music intact, because they went out and, and, and finally uh, licensed the music. But there are other programs that haven't, haven't had this solved. Have you ever wondered why we don't see DVDs of SCTV? There isn't one? Nope. And you know all why? right, why not? No. It's all the music. It's the the licensing of the music and and, and some other elements in the in the uh, in the TV show. They never bothered to get permission to use the music. So as a result, uh, we don't see you don't see SCTV in, in, in reruns. You don't no. see it on DVD or Blu-ray. You don't see it you know anywhere except maybe some, some clandestine versions uploaded online. It all has to do with, with the music and and nobody is really sure who
0: owns what and
3: who needs to be paid. It's it's a real mess.
0: And speaking of a mess, you, you touched on something that I think is really troubling. And now look, I, I, I'm okay if, you know, they set me into the ground someday, still listening to Rush and Boston and whatever else. I mean, I'm okay with that, but we have a lot of people, a lot of new musicians who are coming out and you bring up a valid point. If they're spending a fortune, hundreds of millions of dollars, some of these companies on these catalogs, and there's only so much money in the pie that theoretically, maybe not even theoretically, practically means there's less money for new artists, which means yeah. you're going to be squeezing them out of the game.
3: It's very possible. That's one of the things that that some people are really concerned about. And don't forget, we are, we're we only we're only at the beginning of these big publishing catalog purchases. What happens when the Eagles say, "Yep, you're right. We're we're going to do exactly the same thing," or God forbid, the Beatles. I can't see that ever happening, but uh, if, if somebody would, you know, how much is the Beatles catalog worth? Those two hundred and forty-five songs, what's that worth? A um, billion dollars? And you know how? You know, and what's going to be done to to uh, recoup that kind of stuff? This isn't over yet. We have a, a, an aging population of rock stars, and they know that some of their contemporaries are making big bucks up front. So, you know, what's to say Bruce Springsteen one day won't say, yeah, you know what, you're right, or you too, or any of these other groups? They, they, they get their money up front. And uh, that will, f- because there's so much money to be recouped, this music will become so ubiquitous that it will hurt the entire music ecosystem. At, you know, a new artists will be hurt at the expense of promoting older artists and older songs so that they can, well, these companies can make their money back.
0: Yeah, that and the fact that we're going to hear a Beatles song selling every single beer and shoe and car and everything else at some point. I mean, all these songs that we think of as, and not just Beatles, but we think of these songs almost as sacred are suddenly going to be popping up on commercials left, right, and center. It's possible. Now, there are clauses in some of these contracts that prevent certain types of use,
3: but, uh, you know, money talks. We'll see.
0: Yeah, you, you, you wait until the last of the Beatles passes away, which inevitably is going to be Ringo because that's, you know, somehow that just seems like it would be the Murphy's Law thing that Ringo <laughs> would be the last one of them. But you wait till the last one and all of a sudden it's the people in their estate and the people from the company come and say, hey, we'll give you an extra $100 million and you didn't even write the music. You think they're going to say, no, we really must protect the integrity of the music. Come on, they're they're taking it's, the money and it's going to be on every car commercial you can find. It's going to be interesting to see, isn't it? You know, what if Led
3: Zeppelin decides, yeah, you know what? I want all our money up front. What if, you know, I said the Eagles, I'm trying to think of some others. Uh, Springsteen, there's another one. Uh, You know, you just go down the list. Yeah, so classic rock could be with us for a lot
0: longer. The advertising people right now, you know, there are meetings going on saying, as soon as we can get our hands on this, what song do we want to go with our product? I can see right now the Trojan Company has a whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin already put aside, ready for, you know, (laughs) that's going to be our song uh, and on and on and on. Yeah, it's, uh, it it is, it's amazing. I mean, good for the, good for the classic legendary bands, I guess. But boy, if you're an artist coming up and you're not one of the biggest out there, boy, these look like they could be uh, interesting times. You better be good. even a mid-tier band, I mean, you may have noticed closer to the heart by Rush is being used in a commercial now.
3: Not the original, but no. a cover of it. Uh, Head by a Century, <laughs> but the Tragically Hip is being used. Not the original, but a cover in a TV commercial.
0: Oh, there's more coming. There's way more coming. Uh, I, and you know... that. <sighs> I'm okay generally with the idea. I'm not one of the people who says, you know, you can never use a great song in a commercial cause it's always ruins it, that closer to the heart version is like, oh, please who in rush gave the go ahead for that soft nobody, sounds nobody, of, nobody, of. Oh, They,
3: they sold their, their catalog for twenty million well, million to a company called Anthem and we used to be called
0: Olay. Now it's called Anthem. So, so, uh, they have no say. <laughs> yeah. Oil of Olay. It sounds like when you hear that commercial, anyway. Alan Cross, uh, you can read his commentary. Why Alan Cross thinks classic rock may be a threat to music of the future. You can find it at globalnews.ca. I go to a journal of musical things. You can find it there. The Scott Radley Show. weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never Never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine Podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective.